Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. I met our guest today several years ago asking for his advice on navigating the world of social media. And one thing is for sure, Chris Dancy always leaves an impression. Chris became known as the most connected man on earth by wrangling the hardware and data for over 700 sensors, devices, applications, and services that tracked and analyzed his life. He is a well-known speaker, consultant, and thought leader, and now he's written a book called Don't Unplug. In today's world awash in data, it makes sense to have a conversation with a guy who's the most comfortable swimming in a sea of data. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to Masters of Data, and I'm really excited to have Chris Dancy with me here today. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Ben. Chris, when I was you know, looking back, and I, we, we've known each other for a few years, but I was looking back, and this whole um, most connected man on earth, what's the origin story here? Tell me a little bit about how you, how you got that moniker at one point. I think it was 2013. I had done a television interview when I worked at BMC Software. And at that television interview, the reporter named Corey referred to me as the world's most surveilled person. About six months later, I was doing a piece for the Wall Street Journal, and they flubbed up surveilled and actually referred to me as connected. I think there's a lot of algorithmic magic in this because slowly over time, it became most connected person on earth, and I was most connected man. And today, you can literally... In almost any country, I think I've counted 30-odd countries, you can just type most connected and I come right up. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going for most. That's my 2018 goal, just putting (laughs) most in a browser and I come right up. Well, you know, I I have to say that connected sounds a little better than surveilled. Surveilled sounds very very government big brother. I was looking back at some of the numbers. I mean, so, I mean, partly the reason why you got this names because you I was seeing 700 sensors devices and applications you had watching your body who you are at one point in time I mean what was it like let's be honest there's a lot more than that currently so I guess you could ask me what is it like let's go a step further there's probably even more watching most of your listeners the reality is we don't think about how connected we are and we only notice we're connected when the interdependencies either fail or create conflict the connections in our life that actually make things work, we don't notice, you know, when things just happen for us and it seems almost like magic. But I'd say if you're being very specific about what is it like to wear a lot of technology and do a lot of purposeful logging, it's difficult. The first level of difficulty is just battery. (laughs) I mean, you have to walk around constantly in a state of plugging in. Today, it's pretty normal. Everyone you see is like looking for a place to plug in. The other thing I think that's really difficult in the beginning is just connectivity. You become aware of when your body's offline and when your home is offline. So today, having a home offline is not a big deal. People experience all the time. They, they can't connect to their cameras, their thermostat, etc. But if we go back five or six years when I was really putting a lot of these systems into place, it was a major problem because you end up with holes in your data. So it's kind of two things. It's kind of like there's the actual infrastructure of a life. And then there's the actual kind of headache of managing that infrastructure. Yeah. It reminds me of one thing. I, For my little bit of what you experienced, I do feel a little naked without my uh, Apple Watch now. So I, I think I understand some small piece of what you're talking about. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've seen joggers who 
they won't go running because their watch isn't charged. There's a definite dependency on data capture. I wouldn't say technology, but on data capture. Yeah, I've definitely found myself, I wouldn't, there are period of times where I wouldn't go for a run because, well, my watch isn't working. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't count. Exactly. And I, I remember, you know, getting angry because of that, because I forgot my watch and I went to work out. One of the bigger questions is why, you know, I read a little bit about why you decided to do it, but I would love to hear it directly from you. I mean, why did you decide to go through that, particularly in the beginning when it was a lot more work? I turn 50 next month and my life, like a lot of lives, has been full of ups and downs. The real truth was two things happened when I turned 40 that made life pretty scary. The first was my health was unsustainable. Smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, I'd been on antidepressants for over 20 years at that point. I was drinking about 36 to 48 cans of Diet Coke a day, consuming anywhere from 3,500 to 5,000 calories. All of that put to one side. It became obvious to me 10 years ago that a majority of my time was spent online and I had no idea what I was doing. I knew how many emails I was overwhelmed with. I knew how often I was scheduled, but I didn't know. I mean, so it just became obvious in the beginning that, you know, my browser knew more about me than I did. And the types of problems that I was facing then are significantly different than the types of problems I have now. The types of problems I have now are management of mortality and just management of dark emotions. You know, how do I keep myself in check so I don't rage on people? But that's a lot different. There's, these are good problems I have nowadays. But, you know, and I think a lot of people understand my story when they hear it through the lens of, oh, I feel overwhelmed and I know that I spend too much time in front of a screen. Then most connected doesn't really matter. Then suddenly I'm approachable. But because of my background in technology, I spent, you know, most of the 2000s as a SQL DBA. <laughs> so life is just a big select statement and how you spend your time <laughs> is the big insert statement, right? So <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it just became really easy. And, you know, it's funny when I saw that you did a podcast called Masters of Data, I thought to myself, hmm, we should chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. When you reach out to me, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so you decided to get a hold of it. The first thing was pretty easy. I mean, the first thing was how do you how do you scrape browser cookies, right? How do you scrape the batter out of your browser for your cookies? And then it just became really simple things like, you know, because I'll be honest with you, it's it's really hard in 2007 to scrape behavior out of a system, much less make it usable, right? So back then I was using something called Yahoo Pipes. You know, and they basically just anything I did online, it scraped that and put it someplace else. So, you know, put something on a social media site, boom, right to my repository. My repositories in the beginning were were really simple. It's just Google Calendar. So, you know, suddenly my Google Calendar with, you know, Google allows you to add multiple calendars within one interface. So I just would create calendars for different life modes. So work, social media, physicality, environment, and all the data from those interfaces, all those data from those systems would go into one interface. I think it makes a lot of sense when I explain it on the stage with visuals. People are like, okay, I get that. That is really smart. Because I think what you start to see is, wow, I can see my day. I mean, if I said to you, Ben, I'm just going to show you how often you get and send emails visually, you'd be like, I have no life balance. You don't need <laughs> to like even think. You'd see it, right? And you start to understand other things. And you know, the speed at which someone responds to the email you sent dictates the importance of them in your life, which again makes sense. We understand it, you know, when I say it out loud, but until you see it, you're like, oh, I'm training everyone in my life to treat me a certain way. At that point, I'm just like, I can fix this. 
this is a data problem, not a lifestyle problem. When you started getting your arms around it, when what did you see change? It's very easy to see that there were a lot of life changes, but I mean, what did that, what did that look like? And you know, really like living that day to day. First thing you have to do is get your arms around this much data, right? So you know, understanding how to collect and categorize data. The next thing is understanding what to do with it. So where do you put it? How do you look at it? And remember, I'm talking about lifestyle, not business stuff. And then the next thing really is understanding, you know, like, well, what do you want to categorize it as? So for me, like in the beginning, it was just about understanding what is a life? Like, how does your life represent itself online? And that came down to breaking it into 10 categories, social media, entertainment, opinion, content, work, money, health, environment, and spirituality. Once I knew those categories, there wasn't anything that entered my life digitally that couldn't be bucketed. You know, so in the beginning, it was like, okay, I had a good way of organizing information. I had a good way of storing information visually because of the calendar and the color coding. I could see it very clear, a really rough day from a really good day, regardless of a search, right? Then like the most important thing and what people are most fascinated with is how do you make it actionable? So in the beginning, it was very simple things like a sensor near the toilet and a sensor near the fridge. So, you know, in your early 40s as a guy, you get up to pee in the middle of the night. It's like clockwork you can set your watch by it so like how do i how do i continue to drink fluids and not pee all night long it seems silly but if you're not sleeping well it really makes a huge difference from there it really moved into behavioral mechanics so you know some of the first things i ever did were at bmc right so when i was there if i was on a conference call and i began to speak above 72 or 73 decibels my lights would slightly dim so it was just my way of checking myself before I wrecked myself. And I hate to use kind of a, a kind of a rap slang, but there's a lot of things you do that precipitate things you regret. And for me, getting my arms around those in 2014, you know, basically I geofenced my credit cards and would get push messages to Google Glass if I was at the bar after 10 p.m. spending money. If I ignored the messages to Google Glass, they went to my family. If my family didn't intervene, they went to the bartender. So there's some crazy fun stuff I could, I could tell you about automating life and what I call, you know, basically we don't download, I always say we don't download apps, we download habits. And then, you know, coming to terms and coming to grips with automating your behavior in such a way that, that you can extract value from it. Because if you're going to collect it and you don't do anything with it, you're just a data hoarder. You're a cat lady for information. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and one thing that this is, um, you sound to me, we, we actually had a guest, Dr. Roberto Rigabon from MIT Sloan. And one of the things he said, and I'm kind of connecting to what you're saying, because one of the things he talks about is that we measure things too late to actually make changes. So we measure things after extreme events, like after someone's had an overdose or after there's an accident or something like that. And part of what I think I'm hearing you say is that by measuring things in a more continuous way and actually having that data at hand, you can actually make decisions to change how you you know approach life, how you approach your your health, how you approach these different things, and if you're if you're only measuring after either infrequently or after something really bad happens, then how do you expect to change? Does that ring true to you? Absolutely. I always tell people everyone measures real time when they're in surgery, right? right? Decisions are made based on that in real time, so there's no measuring too late, right? If something goes wrong in surgery, you can go back and measure a lot of like interactions before that. But I do think it's really about real-time intervention. In healthcare, we call it precision medicine. You know, this is how you you started out. You kind of were doing this when this was a lot harder to do. I mean, now that's, you know, we're talking about, you know, about a, over a decade. What's changed now? How is it different now than when you first kind of went down this path? There are off-the-shelf solutions, right? So you can sign up for 
a service like Gyroscope, which will automatically keep track of how often and what you do on your computer as far as work. It'll keep track of the music you're listening to. It'll read your phone for your behavioral information and biological information and put it together for you. I mean, you know, for two years, Gyroscope, I think they build themselves as an operating system for the human body, has done a remarkable job of making this approachable. And if it's not something like that, as you pointed out earlier, hardware companies are making it extremely easy. I mean, I see more people with Fitbits and Apple Watches and trackers than I see with traditional watches. I mean, literally, it's tilted. And then you go to the big platform companies, they're doing a tremendous amount of information for automating and making actionable your behavior, whether it's Google keeping track of your location or it's Facebook keeping track of your memories. I mean, everything's been automated for you. And I think this is a very exciting time, but it's also a very dangerous time because it's the interface that we have for these devices becomes smaller or invisible. The unseen feedback loops that drive behavior will just become evaporated to the people in their lives. You don't know why people are behaving different if they're not staring at a screen. At least if they're staring at a screen, you can start to make those decisions. And I think the software being released in September from Apple and Google will help people start to understand that as their operating systems. I think Google calls it digital well-being and Apple calls it screen time. So as people start to see how their screen time is affecting their their life. Uh, that's really interesting. And you know, one thing that occurs to me too is that you know, our, at least our perception of data privacy is is changed too. Because I mean, one one thing that you're taking this information digitally and it feels like it's actually potentially at more at risk in some ways. I mean, do you do you feel like that's changed? Is it when you're taking all this data about yourself and you're putting it somewhere? I mean, how do you feel like there's a state of things in terms of like keeping that safe? I think I'm maybe a little bit extra at risk because of two factors, the volume of information I have about myself and my public notoriety. But I think a lot of people who collect what I do or more are just as at risk. But I think we really need to say, you know, is there a difference between data privacy and data safety? So it doesn't take much more than a cursory glance at my Twitter to see that I'm what we call post-private. I believe in life after privacy. I think we need to get rid of the notion of it. But the idea of data safety, I think, is so relevant and so important. Data safety is about not having data used against you. Data privacy is about, well, if you decide some things to hide and some things to hold, why are you doing it? And what I found in a really deep exploration of both my mind and my body is data privacy or the illusion of privacy is about maintaining the status quo in an economic system. So I've been really well off. Some would say I'm really well off now. But when you make, you know, when you start clearing in a couple, more than a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you start to think about privacy less. And if you're poor or impoverished at some level, you're making under 20000 or $10,000 a year, you don't have any privacy, right? Everything, you're in systems that are so tracking you. So for me, data privacy has always kind of been a red herring for a really difficult conversation we don't have about social inequality. But all of that being said, I'm very pro-safety. So, you know, is my data being backed up? Is it being protected? Is it available to me? Can I extract some value? Can it be used against me? You know, I think it's very telling that Apple invests more operating cycles and upgrades into their screenshot technology than they do into their sensors. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a hundred ways to annotate and take screenshots now on your phone. You can literally do full screen videos. You know, the weaponization of our behavior and the enablement of that by platform companies is a real privacy safety issue. It makes sense the way you're the way you're talking about it because there's there, there a certain point where I definitely feel at this. You know, I worked for the government for years, and 
you know, I don't know how many times my credit card has been stolen. There's a, there's a sense that <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a different view than I would have had, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? One thing that came to mind when you were talking about that, and I was going and researching on some of your latest things, you also talked about this as a, you created a data fingerprint of your life, <laughs> and, which seems to be very related. I, I like that term. That, that really does make a lot of sense. I mean, why did you choose that terminology when you said that? I think most people understand fingerprint. With the rise of biometrics, everyone really gets fingerprint. It's unfortunate that fingerprint is leaving as quickly as it showed up with the with the advent of camera technology. But I chose behavior fingerprint because sets of behaviors create an identity, right? If you log into a bunch of sites using your Facebook credentials, I can guarantee there's only about 10 or 12 different behaviors that come out of those logins. And the platform really dictates, right? So there probably isn't a person who's listening to your show who hasn't been offered the choice to log in with social credentials into something, whether it be LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or even just regular email. And when you log into systems, you consider your identity first, right? So when you're going, okay, I'm going to connect to Spotify. Okay, that's okay for Facebook. I don't need any email for that. I just need it to be easy and quick. So we link these kind of intimate behavior transactions, these data transactions into things. And what I started noticing was there were groupings of behavior. So certain groupings of spending money combined with a location that were a fingerprint for certain healthy habits and certain unhealthy habits. Ah, uh, see. Yeah. So I don't want to be really myopic about what I did, but for me, understanding the bucket in which the data lived and how it could be commingled helped me understand the behavior. So for me today, there's a stack of six things that every piece of behavior filters through, and there's not one thing missing. So at first, you really have this idea of time, right? So everything has a time stamp. After time, everything has a location stamp, right? So time and location actually give you a, a really simple behavior, a fingerprint. Most people at 9 a.m. on a Wednesday are doing something related to work, if you're in the Western Hemisphere. After you go through time and location, the next thing you have that is, again, these are all low friction, which means just carrying a phone captures these without you doing anything. So after time and location, you have activity. So if it's Friday night at 9 p.m. and you're sitting still, right, you're not sleeping, you're not running or walking, there's only a few places you could be. There's only a few things you could be doing, right? I can always tell someone's in a meeting, which takes us to the next layer, which is behavioral. Again, no interaction from you, but you do things on your phone that can be captured from an API. Are you listening to music? Are you in a meeting? Do I have access to your calendar? Are you taking photos? Do I have access to your camera roll, right? So if it's a Saturday and you're taking more pictures than you normally do and you're walking, right, you're on vacation. It's just very simple stuff. After that, you've got the biological component, which is you wear a watch, right? Yeah. Is your heart rate elevated while you're sitting down at work at 1030, right? You're in a meeting and you're frustrated, right? This is very simple. And then after a biology of environment, right? Environment is light, sound, temperature, humidity. If you filter everything through those fingerprints, there's the more of those nodes you have, the easier it is to say what someone's doing. We don't need a surveillance state. We have one. What we need to do is more thoughtful dialogue about how do you decode behaviors and how do you make people participate in them? I guess part of the question is what do you do with that? So you, you have this a way of, of figuring out where people are and what they're doing. Yeah, I have a way of doing something with it. And I think the companies we interact with do, right? I mean, just going to the grocery store, you get coupons based on a bunch of data you don't have any control over, right? So 
if you're in your car and you have an, the latest Apple iOS, it'll tell you don't text and drive. So, I mean, there's something that's being done with it for you. If you're sitting down and you've got an elevated heart rate, your watch will tell you you've got to do something. To your point, it will be done for you if you don't choose. And this is where I struggle with the conversation today because it's not about am I opting in or opting out? You've been opted in by the fact you're alive in 2018. The reality is how do we make you a participant in that? And I think that's really why I felt it was so important to write this book at this time. You know, people don't even consider it. We don't even have thoughtful dialogue around behavior until we want to hurt someone with it. And then we pull out the screenshots and the data dumps and everything else. You know, let's go to court. Yeah. You mentioned we hadn't talked about that yet is that you do, you have a book coming out on September 18th called Don't Unplug. So you're basically talking through why you wrote that. You wrote that because you're trying to help people understand this, you know, very issue about how to take control of their own data. Is that right? Take control of their own data. And also, I think we're at a really dangerous time where people are choosing to unplug or try to unplug. And, you know, I understand there needs to be life and work balance, et cetera. But if we look at unplugging under two guises, one being kind of you as a person and the other being kind of societal. So you as a person can choose to unplug. You can become digitally Amish on vacation. But what we found through kind of behavior analysis is you just think about your technology even more if you don't have it. So how do you create a healthy balance while you're using your technology in these vacations in these spaces? I think the other more dystopian side of unplugging is what happens when governments or institutions make decisions for you. So for instance, now with GDPR in Europe, we have a lot of countries where because of the regulations, certain services and or applications aren't available. These are people who had access to these applications for decades, you know, for at least a decade. And now they don't because for one reason or another, companies have not made themselves compliant with GDPR or they're afraid of it. And why I think that is so important to have this conversation is once you enable the government to dictate what gets done to you and your data, you basically are opting people out of the ability to work. You're opting people out of the ability to participate in global conversations and or relationships. It's that clear. Right. It's not like people are sitting around on Facebook, you know, shopping. Right. No, they're interacting with their family and friends. And, and I think as we start to go further down this road where governments and or corporations start to say, OK, we think this is good for you. We quickly move from big brother to big mother. And I don't need corporations or and or governments deciding how my data is going to be used and what's good for me. So I think this is an urgent time to talk about not unplugging and really getting into participating in your own life. and. You know, again, I can't find one book on the market that talks about the positivity of tech without someone saying, you know, Kurzweilian kind of, you know, we're all going to be uploaded and won't it be great? And no, it won't be. <laughs> but if I control it, if I control my own upload, then maybe it could be better. Well, the data is going to be used against us by a robot overlord. So, you know, it's a... That's the current meme, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing, too, you sent me a couple notes when we were communicating. And one thing that's, you know, stuck out to me, you, you talked about, you know, information versus knowledge versus wisdom. So, you know, particularly since you, you've basically been swimming in data for the last, you know, several years. What have you learned about, because there's a lot of data in the world, but there's not always a lot of wisdom in the world. I mean, we I think we probably all agree on that. How did you feel like you've learned about the connection between data versus converting that into knowledge you can actually act on and, and actual wisdom, which is a much it's deeper concept. What have you learned about that? So, I came across this, you know, I think they call it the DIKW pyramid, the data information knowledge wisdom pyramid. 
back in 2012 at a conference. So someone was sharing it. And I found it provocative only because pyramids really force your attention. And they also help us make judgments very quickly. You know, so things at the bottom are long and flat and they, they get more important as they go toward the top. But for me, as I started to deconstruct this data information knowledge wisdom pyramid, it really became apparent that it followed Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is also a pyramid. Right. <laughs> so as we kind of navigate our lives and we've put data information knowledge wisdom onto a pyramid of sorts, the first thing you can do if you apply Maslow's principles to this is you can actually say, okay, well, what is the lowest layer of Maslow? Well, the lowest layer of Maslow is physiology, right? So it's just basically the body, the, the world, right? You move up from there, you get into safety, right? Like, you know, I'm do I have jobs? Does the temperature go okay? You know, am I eating right? And you move up there, you've kind of got social interactions and you move up from there, you've kind of got self-esteem, right? So it's hard for people to envision this, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs actually makes a lot of sense when you think about kind of your life and the things you need. You need to have a house. You need to be, you know, it needs to be temperature controlled at, at some point or you're just going to die, right? And after that, you need to have some type of safety system. So after that, you need people around you. And after that, you need like some purpose and all that other kind of fun stuff. So what I what I did was I actually took not the data, but the informations that created data, and I put them into that same pyramid. So my basic needs were the lowest level. So systems and services like electricity, right? The mortgage processing company, right? And then my physical needs and the safety and other types of needs. So things that actually made it possible for me to, to continue to have a job, et cetera. And then kind of my self-fulfillment needs. What you'll find first, and interestingly enough, when you put your entire data and or life, digital life into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is most people are top heavy. Most people use technology at the top of the pyramid and they don't consider it at the bottom. So it's all about kind of the, the flashiness of data and the flashiness of technology. But as you start to re-manage the technology down the stack, you start to say, wow, there's real disruption, not only for me, but for my family and for my loved ones in the world when I work from the bottom up. And, you know, from a spiritual side, I really had to get into, wow, you know, data just like hooks me. It's kind of like something I can instantly make a judgment on, right? And you, people always kind of, you know, weaponize, ah, oh, it's the data tells me. But people rarely ever talk about the information. So to really kind of put it all into context, I had to put some temporal layers around it. So data was literally immediate gratification. Information was more kind of something that helped point a direction or would help me foster a decision. Knowledge was something that I could make a decision on and it had been agreed upon by a lot of people. And wisdom, as far as I can tell so far, doesn't matter who says it, doesn't matter what when they say it, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, it's true. That makes sense. I really wanted to kind of get my arms around it. And I think some people have a hard time with kind of the esoteric or the spiritual side of things when we're talking about data, but, you know, at the end of the day, you believe it. You know, I'd say most people were pagan before they're anything else because they put too much faith in something that is so transient. I mean, most data that's worth anything is temporary and you won't even know that, it, to your point earlier about, we don't measure it soon enough. Right? How, how long is a Waze traffic accident good for? Not very long. Two hours and only good if you're driving. So it's really good long-term if you start to you know, manage roads around it, right? But again, you need to put temporal filters over kind of these information. So I hope it's not too heady. No, no, it, it actually makes sense. You know, and another thing that comes to mind is that it, it seems that you're putting a temporal aspect to it, but you're also thinking about its usefulness to humans, you know, to humankind or whatever you want to call it. Because in some sense, 
you know, we're getting to a point now where we're, there is a tendency to collect data for the sake of collecting data. Which is okay. <laughs> you know, I, I always think people get, you know, there's a lot of shame you can do with that. But, you know, if you never <laughs> use your Apple Watch data, God bless you. You know, you don't have to use it, right? Yeah. I just worry that sometimes we talk about, you know, we shame people into not using their data or we talk about them not using it. No, no, and that, that, that does make sense. In some sense, you do want to put that in their human context because they may not want to use, I may not use all the data on my Apple Watch on a consistent basis, but I know what it means to me. I know what my heart rate means. I know what these other things mean. But if you're, you really don't have a path to how that data is actually going to provide value for it. Because in the, the day, if it's not providing you know, value, helping people make better decisions, right? I mean, what's the point of collecting it on some level, even if they're not doing it at that point, right? Yeah, and I mean, Journaling, I think, is one of the oldest form, or diaries, it's one of the oldest form of data collection, right? And a lot of people, you know, there's no immediate gratification to it. And oftentimes, let's be honest, the real value of journals comes from after you've passed away. And people, you know, can revisit that if they take the time to. But the reality is, you know, today there's so much you can do with journaling because Facebook is just kind of journaling that gets returned to you once a year by Facebook or every day with the on this day feature. So I think what's really telling is once Apple and, and Google and the other big tech companies really start providing not only real-time analytics, what I sometimes call turn-by-turn directions for life, but kind of historical precedents, and then go from there and say, people like you, right? So all the 50-year-olds who are you know, wearing Apple watches, this is where you are in that stack. And these are the types of things you could be doing that they are, that you're not doing. Again, I think we're looking at a time where we have a, an Etsy for behavior, right? You just go and you browse different behaviors of people with lifestyles that you like. And, you know, I sometimes call it, I, I sometimes refer to it tongue in cheek as an identity condom, right? And I just slip into your identity and see if they work for me. I just really, really get off on making data living and making people aware of how easy it is to manipulate their lives if they only were a little bit more invested. It seems like right now with everything that's going on, it's a, it's a good topic to be talking about. So it's, it's very timely. Yeah. Masters of data level. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a pretty big name, Ben. Masters of data. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I true. picture like He-Man covered in ones and zeros. <laughs> well, go big or go home, right? So, you know, wrapping up here, you usually ask what's next. I mean, I assume what's next at this point is you're going to be spending a lot of time talking about your book, I would assume, right, for the next few months. I mean, that would be the goal. That'd be nice, wouldn't it, if, <laughs> if I was allowed to talk about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a bunch of, I'm a paid speaker, so I get paid to travel literally all over the world. You know, I got paid to write the book, so that was really important. So, yeah, there's, there's a good three or four months where I have to be dedicated to talking about the book just because my publisher would want that. And I have to continue to speak because that's how I, I earn a majority of my income when I'm not consulting. I do a lot of consulting work for some of the big tech companies and a lot of really small ones. And unfortunately, a lot of secret work, you know, work that like people are like, you can never mention you were here. <laughs> but that being said, I think, you know, after that, I mean, time will tell. I mean, I'm still relatively young, even though, you know, at 50, you feel old, but like in my head, I don't feel old. Again, I really would like to get involved in some advocacy at some point, maybe even policy on how we're thinking about this. But, you know, again, I, dude, you know how it is. Some days I can't think past like the next 10 minutes. So who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. I hear you on that. Chris, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm, I'm really excited to read your book when it comes out, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. 
SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.